0: You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brothers to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grains and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years, relax, eat, drink and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is the word of the Lord.
1: You know, in our humanistic culture, people easily lose sight of what life is They pursue many things, thinking that in them they will find meaning, significance, and purpose. Some of these pursuits include business success, or wealth, good relationships, sex, uh, entertainment, and just doing good to others. People have testified that while they've achieved these goals of wealth, relationships, and pleasure, there was still this deep void inside. And an emptiness, a feeling of emptiness that nothing seemed to fulfill. They tell us that even if one could even stockpile a large accumulation of our resources, it would would not produce life because life does not consist in things. In fact, it doesn't consist in many things. In fact, research shows that one is never satisfied with the amount one has. We always want more that friends tend to fade away when the money diminishes, and that happiness comes from doing the things you love, not the things you buy, and that experiencing and savoring special moments can fill your heart in ways money cannot. Money isn't everything, right? I just happened to bring a little bit with me this morning. But uh, it, it can buy a bed, but it can't buy sleep. It can buy a clock, but it can't buy time. Money can buy you a book, but it can't buy you knowledge. It can buy you a position, but not respect. It can buy you medicine, but not health. It can buy you blood, but not life. It can buy you sex, but not love. So you see, money isn't everything. And it often causes pain and suffering. So I tell you this because I am your friend. And as your friend, I want to take away your pain and suffering. So send me all your money (laughs) and I will suffer for you. Or as George Carlin says, it's true that money can't buy happiness, but somehow it's much more comfortable crying in a Porsche than on a bicycle. (laughs) What is life? Where is it to be found? What part do our resources play in life? We're gonna look at that in just a moment. But what are things that keep us from living life? Could greed be one of those things that keep us from living life? Greed can be defined as an insatiable desire to find fulfillment, meaning, and purpose in material possessions instead of in God. If I gave you a test on greed, how do you think you would do? Well, let's find out. John Piper put together this little test of five questions. And uh, question number one is, do my thoughts more often run after material things than after God himself? That is, if I am thinking about that new car or that nicer house or that better computer, and I seldom think of, about how I can know God better, then he says I'm tainted by greed. Or question two, Do I ever compromise godly character in the pursuit of material gain? If I sometimes cheat, lie or steal to get ahead financially or to avoid financial loss, I am being greedy. If I'm willing to shred relationships or to take advantage of another person for financial gain, I'm being greedy. If I care more about making money than about being a witness for our Lord Jesus, I am being greedy. Question three says, do I enjoy material things more than I enjoy knowing God? If my happiness soars when I get that new car, but I'm bored by the things of God, I am greedy. If I rejoice when I win a raffle or a door prize, but I yawn when I hear about a soul being saved, I am greedy. And then question number five, how do I respond when I, uh, question number four, when I, how do I respond when I lose material things? When the stock market drops, do I fall apart emotionally? If I get robbed or lose uh, some of the things in a fire, does it devastate me? I'm not saying that we must be stoic about such losses. We will always feel some sadness whenever we lose things but if it wipes us out, then we probably too attach to the world and its goods. And then question number five, what would I do if I suddenly came into a fortune? I presume that probably none of you play the lottery, but let's suppose you won the Reader's Digest or what a distant relative died and left you a large inheritance. Would your first thought be, now I can get that better house or that car or that boat, or now I can take, around, take a trip around that world that I've always wanted to do. Or would you think, wow, now I can support a dozen missionaries. Thousands of people can hear Christ because he has given me funds to invest in order to s- spread his kingdom message. Well, how did you do on the test? I personally did not do all that well. But my main point I wanna make this morning to you is this, we need to trust in God, not in our resources. For life is about where we put our trust and where we put our treasure. It's about being rich towards God. Now we may know these things, but are we living that way? In 1939, a wealthy businessman by the name of Oskar Schindler arrived in Krakow in southern Poland, seeking to make a fortune from World War II, which had just begun. After joining the Nazi party primarily for political expediency, he staffed his factory with Jewish workers, primarily for greed and pragmatic reasons. When the SS began exterminating Jews in the Krakow ghetto, Schindler arranges to have his workers protected to keep his factory in operation. But soon he realizes that in doing so, he is saving innocent lives. Though he was not a follower of Jesus, his actions of using his wealth to bribe Nazi officials allowed these Jews to work in the factories and kept 1,200 of them from being exterminated. In time, he realized that life isn't just accumulating money or spending it on oneself. It was about much more. You know, as Christ followers, how we choose to use or not use our resources makes a difference to God and to others, both in this life and in the life to come, as we'll see uh, in the message today. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus is speaking to standing room only. In fact, verse 1 says he was talking to a thousand individuals. And uh, in the midst of all that, uh, uh, as they're listening to Jesus, uh, he had been teaching the people to fear God and to trust him for everything. But right in the middle of this sermon, one man bellies up and then blurts out, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Can you picture this in your mind? His face is probably flushed. His voice is anxious and insistent. He interrupts Jesus with this problem. His problem is about him not getting his fair share of the inheritance property from his brother after his father had died. Because in Judaism, the oldest son always received a double portion of the inheritance, and then he was responsible to divide up the other third among the rest of the family. And so this man was so worried to get his share of the family's estate that nothing else really matters to him, not even social etiquette. He doesn't care about the point Jesus is trying to make with the crowd, all he cares about is himself. Verse 14, he says, "'Man, who made me judge or arbitrator over you?' Jesus was not a judge in Israel, for there were courts to settle matters like this. So Jesus just shoes the individual away with this selfish demand. Yet without skipping the beat, our Savior turns this intrusive moment into an instructive one. Jesus knew that the family feud over money was only a symptom of a greater problem, covetousness or greed. Verse 15, he says, and he said to them, take care or watch out, be on guard against all covetousness, or as greed as some translations say. Jesus addresses his teachable moment, and says to them, most likely just to the, to the two brothers, even though this huge crowd was probably listening in. Both men were probably guilty of greed. The older one for not giving his younger brother uh, what was due him, and the younger brother just for demanding what was his. So Jesus starts out with a warning. He says, take care or be cautious, be alert, be attentive, be watchful. And then he gives this exhortation, be on guard against uh, against this t- trying to happen in your life. It would seem that this first command, take care, shows us the need to believe that this danger really exists. And while the second one, be on guard against, underscores the vigilance needed to resist uh, the evil for what it is. You know, the idea here is that greed is something that can creep in without us being aware of it. If the sin underlying the man's request was greed, Jesus, the teacher, goes on to spell out the principle, which shows the man's values, not only to be wrong, but to be foolish. And he says that in verse 15, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus is not teaching that life does not consist in possessions. He's saying that even if one could amass a large accumulation of possessions, it would not produce life. The younger brother thought that all of his troubles would be over if he just received his inheritance. In fact, most people think that way. But Jesus corrects this by illustrating this point with a parable of the rich man. Verse 16, he says, the rich man is a farmer and the land produced plentifully. You know, this man's hands was probably callous from years of working the land. His wealth had been hard earned. In year, earlier years, he was probably the first one up in the morning and probably the last one to go to bed at night. His nights were probably f- figuring out profits by the dim oil lamp, thinking ways to squeeze out a few more bushels out of his day. But as the years flew by and his barns filled up, the rich man looked forward to that day when he didn't have to depend upon the rain or worry about the locusts destroying his crop. And that day came with a bumper crop so big his barns couldn't even contain it. So that now he sketches the blueprints of one last building project. And right beside it, he unrolled his plans for retirement. Verse 17, and he thought to himself, what should I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry." You know, this rich man is probably the envy of all his neighbors. He's the perfect example of hard work and wise planning. But in the eyes of God, verse 20, he is a fool. For that night, his soul would be required of him. He had prepared every harvest except for the most important one, the one that would come that very night. Cloaked in darkness, the rich man is taken away in death without so much of a whisper of a warning. But not one grain of his wealth goes with him. He assumed that his riches would last and only wanted a place to store them. Verse 20, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? All that he had stored away for himself is left to be dispersed among his Heirs. It will be fought over in the same way that the man in the crowd fought with his brother over the inheritance that his father left. He had gathered everything in his barns except an understanding of what life is all about. He failed to understand that life is not about things, it's not about how much you accumulate, it's not even about enjoying what you've accumulated. So then, what is life all about? Jesus turns and answers that question in verse 21. So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Life is about where we put our trust and where we put our treasure. It's about being rich towards God. This instructive moment with the Savior fell on thousands of ears that day but I wonder how many of them actually heard it. And the one who heard it the least was the one who worried the most, the man who interrupted Jesus in the middle of his sermon. Such a tragedy. He worried about getting a portion of an estate when an entire kingdom was being offered to him. The rich man thought he was being prudent. He thought he through his matters very carefully but God bluntly calls him a fool. What causes a person to be a fool in God's eyes? Psalm 14:1 says that a fool is a person who says there is no God. But in this parable, a fool is someone who trusts more in their resources than in trusting God. This passage teaches us what a fool is in God's eyes. There are five ways we can be foolish. First, we can be foolish in God's eyes when we fail to recognize God as the source of our prosperity. Notice that in verse 16, Jesus did not say a certain man worked very hard and accumulated a great fortune. That's not what he said. It says a ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. You see, the farmer's prosperity came from God, not something he produced. And he failed to see that. He had plowed his fields, planted the grain, tended the soil, and gathered the harvest. He had done it in himself, so he thought. If you look at this passage closely, you'll notice 11 pronouns with I and my in them. He says, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops." I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. The wealth was his and he had no responsibility to anybody else, including God. But that's not how Jesus saw it. The farmer didn't recognize that he was not the owner, but only the possessor, the steward. He failed to see that all of it belonged to God. The Bible declares in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. See, God rightfully owns the whole works. And you know what? You and I are gonna give an account one day for being stewards. A steward is someone who manages things for his owner. God is the owner, we are the stewards. We are to manage the resources God has given us, whether it's our time, our talents, or our treasure. You see, this man was self-reliant and self-sufficient. He had no thoughts towards God. You know, in our culture, measures the worth of an individual largely by in terms of his possessions. But God measures our worth by what's in our heart, by what's in our attitude, and how we serve him on a regular basis. Warren Wiersbe says, the material blessings of life are either a mirror in which we see ourselves, or a window through which we see God. The proud, selfish person thinks he deserves all the blessings and he thinks only of himself. But the person who knows that all the blessings that come from God looks away from himself to the Lord who gives so richly. When you look at your blessings of your life, do you instinctively think of God or of yourself? Well, secondly, we are foolish in God's eyes when we fail to understand what we should do with our resources. You know, there's nothing wrong with having money and resources if they're properly used. There's nothing wrong with an enjoyment for God wants that. for God gives us all things to richly to enjoy. But selfish enjoyment that ignores God and others is not God's will. The world would view this rich man as a success. In fact, in the business world, he would be a model to follow. His goal was to enjoy life, but in seeking it, I want you to see he lost it. Wealth tends to trap us into this self-absorption, materialism, and insensitivity to others. The rich man lived by what he saw, and he measured everything in terms of his own enjoyment. What was wrong with the man's focus? Well, he had a worldly perspective, not a godly one. God wants us to think in terms of things that are eternal, things that are significant, things that really matter both in this life and in the life to come. Things like living a godly life, helping people in need, sharing our faith and discipling others. God desires for us to use, to save, and to invest our resources well, so that we will have more money to give away for his kingdom purposes. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and be ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of which is life indeed. You know, we're bombarded daily with the world's perspective, which is invariably focused on this life. But God's perspective always takes into account the life to come. Well, third, we are foolish in God's eyes when we see our resources as our security. You know, the farmer was basking in false success and false satisfaction. In the eyes of man, he was wise and successful, but in the eyes of God, he was a fool, a failure. He had things money could buy, but he lost the things money could not buy. Life. You know, Jesus saw no security in things, but in emptying ourselves of anything that would take the place of doing the will of God. You know, it's not sinful to provide for the future, not to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. He just doesn't want us to depend on those things. He wants us to always depend on Him. Where is your security? Is it in your house? Is it in your bank account? Is it in your stocks? You know, if the stock market crashes or the value of the dollar plummets, how will that affect your security? You know, the eye sees what the heart loves. If we love God and put him first in our lives, then whatever material blessings we receive will only draw us closer to God. We're reminded that in Hebrews 13, where it says, keep your lives free from the love of money. And be content with what you have, because God has says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Fourth, we are foolish in God's eyes when we presume we will be alive to possess and enjoy our resources. You know, the rich man presumed two things about the future, both of which were false. Firstly, he presumed that he would possess his wealth in the future, in his days to come. And secondly, he presumed that he would be alive in the future to enjoy those possessions. But both of those presuppositions were shown to be false when his life was demanded of him that very night. Someone else got his possessions and he did not live to enjoy what he had stored up. Unfortunately, the rich man's future was only as long as his earthly life and only as broad as his own interests. And lastly, we are fools in God's eyes when we fail to define life and how it's to be obtained. You know, the rich man defined life in terms of ease and pleasure, in terms of eating and drinking as seen in the words, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. He believed that life was obtained by putting oneself and one's wealth first. He believed that a person finds life by seeking it for oneself and ignoring others, including God. You know, but Jesus told his disciples in Luke 9 that the way for a person to obtain life is to give it up. He says, if, if any of you wants to be a follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? That's why Jesus can command his disciples, his followers to give up their possessions, their self-interest, and even their lives to follow him. For the things they give up are not life, but he is. Life is not found in the abundance of our resources, but in our relationship with the Lord and sacrificing our lives for him and for others. That is where life is found. Life is where we put our trust and put our treasure. It's about being rich towards God. At the end of the movie of Schindler's List, the war is over, and Mr. Schindler is leaving the many Jews whom he had saved by employing them in his munitions factory. He had spent much of his personal fortune bribing German officials in order to save Jewish people from the death chambers. But as he looks at them, he breaks down weeping and laments. I could have done more. Take a look. As we think of our Savior's commission to make disciples, we need to ask ourselves, am I doing enough? When each of us stand before God, we don't want to have any regrets. We don't want to say to Jesus, I wish I could have done more. I think we need to get to it right now while we still can. But it begins with trusting in God, not in our resources. For life's about where we put our treasure, where we put our trust and where we put our treasure. It's about being rich towards God.